0: Hey, I'm Ali. I work for the Science Gallery here at MSU. Okay. Would you be willing to answer a few questions for a podcast? Sure. sure. Okay. So if you were to find out that there were microphones on the street uh, listening into like conch or maybe just like profiling uh, behavior, what would you do?
1: I'd be a little scared.
0: <laughs> Creepy, <laughs> to be honest with you. I think that the reason that they do stuff like that is because of a lack of trust. And I think it all starts with being able to trust yourself and uh, then you're able to trust other people and build that in your community without having to have oversight and uh, enforcement and fear. I think uh, that's a fear thing is to scare people into behaving in a certain way.
1: I don't think it would be a bad
2: idea. It would be a little bit a violation of privacy, but I think it would help a lot when it comes to um, difficult situations. Um, I think I
0: would, like, feel comfortable knowing that there are, like, people who are listening
3: in on criminal behaviors. Um, I would definitely feel pretty conflicted, because although it's important to kind of know what's going on, it's still scary to think that, like, you're being listened to in private conversations, which could mess a lot of things up. So, I think I'd say I'm generally opposed to that, even though I understand, like, the sentiment of safety.
4: I don't think there's much that I would do about it. Like, I'd be uncomfortable with it. I can kind of understand where they're coming from with it, but I feel like it should be a known thing instead of being secretive.
1: Hi, I'm Antoine Scott. And I'm Natasha T. Miller. And this is Tracked and Traced a podcast about surveillance technology and how it affects you. We're looking at surveillance and asking the question, is it worth it? Is it working? Last episode, we learned about Project Greenlight in Detroit. Today, we're looking at another surveillance program in the city. It's called ShotSpotter. What do you know about ShotSpotter?
2: So, Natasha, all I know about ShotSpotter is that it's audio surveillance and it's supposed to detect gunshots. Other than that, I have no idea where it's used, what it looks like, or even how it works. But after today, I think we'll learn a little bit more about the technology that ShotSpotter uses and exactly who it's affecting.
1: Later on, we'll talk with Jonathan Mains, who knows a lot about ShotSpotter. Jonathan is an attorney at the MacArthur Justice Center at Northwestern's Pritzker School of Law. He was part of a team that published a 2021 study on ShotSpotter's effectiveness in Chicago. That study found that ShotSpotter was responsible for over 40,000 dead-end police deployments in a 21-month period. But first, Bryce Huffman reports on how ShotSpotter is being used in Detroit.
3: It's Friday night, and I'm standing on the 1900 block of Hoyt Street on Detroit's east side. If I were to fire a gun in the air, Detroit police would get notified even if no one reported the shooting. That's because they have a gunshot detection tool from the company ShotSpotter Incorporated. The ShotSpotter system uses microphones and sensors to identify the sound of gunfire and in real time give police an 100-yard radius for where the sound came from. ShotSpotter Incorporated commissioned a consulting firm to audit its technology. Using data supplied by the company, the audit confirmed its claim that the system accurately identifies gunfire 97% of the time. Other reports have disputed the accuracy of the system, questioning whether sounds similar to gunshots, like fireworks or a car backfiring, can alert the system. Back in March 2021, former Detroit Police Chief James Craig boasted of the early success of the system. Uh,
5: Again, we deployed on Monday afternoon. We went live with ShotSpotter on the east side of Detroit. Within 24 hours, we got a hit.
3: This hit allowed the police to arrest two known gang members and stop a criminal operation.
5: Uh, and officers from the 9th precinct quickly responded out uh, to start that investigation, which resulted in what I'm referring to as a gun manufacturing operation here in the city of Detroit.
3: Craig All praised the technology for delivering results early, but the city had actually used it before. Back in 2014, ShotSpotter, Incorporated reached out to the Detroit Police Department about using their system for a free 15-month pilot program. Officers who used it back then, uh, they found it easy to use, uh, found it to be very accurate. Uh, We got a lot of positive feedback from it. This is Assistant Police Chief David Lavallee, who used ShotSpotter during the pilot period. He says the goal was to reduce violent crime and respond to shootings more quickly. So the department began using it to create surveillance teams in the areas where it got the most shot spotter alerts.
0: We actually were able to execute some search warrants based on shot spotter information uh, that were fruitful. Uh, so it, it got um, a lot of support from officers on the ground that it was able to give them much more accurate, timely information than just relying on a 911 call.
3: That was 2014. Now, ShotSpotter is being used exclusively in a six-square-mile radius in small sections of Detroit's far west and east side neighborhoods. The populations of both neighborhoods are overwhelmingly black. Thanks to an agreement made between DPD and ShotSpotter Incorporated, no police or city officials know exactly where the microphones and sensors are located. How has ShotSpotter been used since it launched back in March?
0: Uh, So, around the clock, there's officers that are focused on that. you know, focused on that technology and they, they stay in that area and that's not all that they do, but it's it's their primary focus is the ShotSpotter. And so we found that by having them readily available to respond, we're able to get there quickly, make some arrests. We've issued tickets, taken uh, quite a few illegal firearms off the streets.
3: In the nine months since Detroit police officially launched ShotSpotter, they have made 64 arrests using ShotSpotter alerts as evidence. The department has also recovered more than 200 firearms and collected casings from more than 683 locations within the area ShotSpotter operates. But that's not all. LaValley says the department has seen a slight difference in the number of shootings in the areas that have ShotSpotter, like the 8th and 9th precincts, and those that don't. LaValley says ShotSpotter's impact doesn't just involve gun-related crimes, though. Looking at
0: most of the violent crime has gone down in the ShotSpotter areas because there's a lot of other aggravated assaults that involve weapons, and we're just seeing less,
3: less use of weapons in those areas. But police have provided little evidence to back up that claim. DPD has not responded to a Freedom of Information Act request for the total number of ShotSpotter alerts they've received and the number of officers deployed based on those alerts. The department also hasn't given a number of criminal convictions made based on ShotSpotter. Despite the success Detroit police say they have seen with ShotSpotter, The technology has many critics, not all of whom are actually Detroiters. Joe Stanley is a senior policy analyst with the American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU. He says he has many concerns with ShotSpotter.
0: One of those concerns is that ShotSpotter is deployed overwhelmingly in communities of color, which already often have um, troubled relationships with the police, which disproportionately bear the blunt of a heavy police presence which are often sort of simultaneously over-policed and under-policed.
3: Stanley says this is problematic because police often harass and intimidate residents of these communities disproportionately compared to people in wider and more affluent neighborhoods.
0: And here you have a system that's sending police running into, um, you know, um, neighborhoods of color, often on high alert and, you know, ready, loaded for bear, ready— a you know a situation that involves a gun and, and that many of those alerts uh, are false alarms. So in that sense the, many communities have been concerned that shotspotter is exacerbating existing problems
3: um, between police and communities. Detroiter Willie Burton is another critic of the gunshot detection system. Burton represents the city's fifth district on the board of police commissioners, the civilian oversight Board of the Detroit Police Department. Burton says he has several concerns with the technology and how it could be used to harm Detroiters.
0: Well, number one is a lot of our residents in the community are not aware of what ShotSpotter is. There haven't been enough public uh, discussions or any uh, public discussions of that matter about the technology, the harms and
3: dangers of this technology. During the weekly Board of Police Commissioner meetings, Burton is often the only person on the 11-member board to question the police department's use of this technology. He was one of only two commissioners to vote against approving the city's $1.5 million contract with ShotSpotter Incorporated, a contract that would later be approved by city council. Burton also takes issue with a private company not having to directly answer to Detroiters for what he calls threats to residents' privacy. Those that work at ShotSpotter Incorporated say they take these kinds of criticisms of its technology seriously. Ron Teachman is the company's director of public safety solutions.
0: ShotSpotter is very concern about the constitutional rights of the members of the communities that were located and we've taken steps to ensure that we protect those rights
3: despite the civil rights concerns teachman still believes that shotspotter can be a great tool to help police in Detroit curb gun violence but it's not just reducing gun violence it's also saving lives by getting the police to the scene promptly and accurately because our location system Several cities using ShotSpotter have seen reductions in gun violence. But even Teachman admits that technology is just one tool among many that helps police departments fight crime. The Detroit Police Department hasn't held public forums regarding the use of this technology or its contract with ShotSpotter Incorporated. Transparency activists say it's common for police departments around the country to keep residents in the dark when it comes to surveillance technology like ShotSpotter. Chad Marlow is the senior policy counsel at the ACLU. He says there is a safeguard against this practice. In Detroit, it's called the Community Input Over Government Surveillance, or COGS Ordinance, which makes any discussion around spending public money on or using surveillance technology more open and transparent.
2: It provides public hearings so that the public actually, with the information that they're given, has the ability to form opinions and advocate for what they're looking for. And ultimately, it rests final decisions with uh, the democratically elected city council. So there is a aspect of accountability now between the decision makers uh, and the voters.
3: The city of Detroit adopted this ordinance in 2021. Marlowe says this means the surveillance oversight ordinance doesn't apply to older contracts like the one for ShotSpotter.
2: Because of the way that the Detroit city charter is is written, the city council cannot go backwards and kind of claw back uh, programs.
3: But he says funding doesn't last forever, and approvals don't last forever.
2: They're gonna have to come back to the city council at some point
3: and ask for more equipment or more money or those sort of things. Detroit isn't the only place using ShotSpotter. Their surveillance technology is currently being used in more than 120 cities across the U.S., including Chicago, Boston, Columbus, and New York City. Detroit police are currently planning to extend the use of ShotSpotter to more precincts despite the legal issues that could arise also in spite of the civil rights implications of installing microphones in black and brown neighborhoods.
2: That was Bryce Huffman, a reporter for Bridge Detroit and WDET. And there's an update. Mayor Duggan's administration is seeking to use American Rescue Plan money in the tune of $7 million to expand the use of ShotSpotter. City Council will have the opportunity to accept or reject that proposal. Coming up, we'll talk to Jonathan Maines about how ShotSpotter has been used in Chicago, right after the break.
0: WDET celebrates 75 years of public radio with gratitude to our dedicated listeners. Listeners like you cherish community voices, local music, and independent journalism. This spring fundraiser, we're counting on your support, just as you count on us. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app.
1: Okay, so we know a lot more about how ShotSpotter is being used in Detroit. But let's take a step back and look at some of the broader implications. To do that, we called up Jonathan Maines, an attorney at the MacArthur Justice Center at Northwestern's Pritzker School of Law, where he also teaches. His law practices focuses on civil rights violations, surveillance, police technologies, mass incarceration, and national security. He was part of the team who conducted the study on ShotSpotter in Chicago.
4: ShotSpotter is a surveillance system that is supposed to detect the sound of gunfire and locate it um, and send that information out to the police so that they can respond quickly. The way the system works is that if a city contracts with ShotSpotter, ShotSpotter will wire up the city with microphones. Um, They're usually on top of lampposts or buildings, about 15 to 20 microphones per square mile. And those microphones are always listening, always recording. Each microphone, each individual microphone saves about 30 hours of audio uh, locally um, at all times. And the way the system works is that when any of those microphones detects a loud noise, any kind of loud noise, it sends an audio snippet back to ShotSpotters computers. And then it runs the audio through a couple software algorithms that try to identify the location of the sound and crucially to distinguish gunshots from other kinds of loud noises that sound like gunshots. And uh, there's a lot of questions about how those algorithms work. They're a black box. They've never been vetted. Um, Nobody has ever been able to test them out and see how they work um, outside of ShotSpotter. And then they also have these like sort of call center staffers who are listening to the audio clips and looking at a screen. And then they they are actually the ones who decide whether to call the sound a gunshot and to trigger an alert. So those ShotSpotter employees are effectively dispatching police. And when that employee says, uh, yeah, we think this is a gunshot, Police are immediately notified, and in most cities, certainly in Chicago, they're dispatched immediately to that location, told that they're entering a spot where shots were just fired, and somebody was presumably armed. So that's kind of how the system works, and there's a lot of questions about how reliable or
2: useful it is. So, can you help us, like, learn what is the intended outcomes of that shot
4: spotter technology? If you look at ShotSpotter's marketing, it changes over time exactly, like what exactly the, the purpose is. Uh, I think the most consistent idea is to get officers out to the location of gunfire quickly and accurately. Shotspotter always repeats the statistic that you know most gunfire isn't reported back to the police. And so the idea is that this is a way to alert the police about gunshots so they can go out and response. Now the trouble is that you know, we've actually done research now in Chicago. Um, looking at what happens when officers go to the location ShotSpotter told them. And what we found was that only about 10% of ShotSpot alerts led police to find any kind of corroboration of a gun incident. Um, and that includes like just finding someone with an illegal gun. We're not talking about shootings, you know, we're just talking about like any kind of gun-related incident. So 90% of the time shots spotter sending police out and they're not finding anything at the scene to corroborate the idea that there was gunfire there. And actually, after we did our study, the inspector general in Chicago, which is the sort of official investigator that oversees the city and the police department, they did a very similar study and they found the numbers were even worse. So in there, they found only 9% of spotter alerts led police to find any corroboration of any kind of gun incident. So there's a real question about whether the technology is doing what ShotSpotter says, which is getting police out to shootings reliably and quickly and accurately. And on the other hand, these 91% of ShotSpotter alerts where police show up and don't find anything to corroborate gunfire, it's not like those are costless. You know, these are situations where the police are entering the location on high alert, expecting to find someone with a gun. Anyone they encounter in the area, they'll treat as if they are a potentially lethal threat. And I think now, you know, we've all seen how easy it is for an interaction between police and the public to go sideways when the police feel under threat, whether for legitimate reason or not. So that's a real concern is that the ShotSpotter is basically deploying police over and over and over again. And police should expect to find nothing 90% of the time, but that's certainly not ShotSpotter's marketing. So what is that process
2: like in the sales of this technology for police departments? How how does it get in their hands?
4: Great question. So, you know, all of this police surveillance technology is basically an unregulated market. There are companies that come up with uh, a technology and then they go and they pitch it to police departments all over the country. There are conventions and other sort of marketing opportunities, but there's no regulator. There's nobody who's sort of like the Consumer Reports or the Underwriters Laboratories for surveillance technology. The companies are just making their pitch to law enforcement. And, you know, ShotSpotter in particular has a very big marketing operation. I think something like 20 or 25% of their um, spending every year is marketing. Uh, you know, they make a pitch to police departments that this is the way to, or a way to address gun violence. Of course, gun violence is a is a real problem and everybody wants to um, reduce injuries and loss of life because of gun violence, especially in our cities. And they're sort of promising this like technological silver bullet, so to speak, that will help. But there's actually like very little, no evidence really that it actually helps to reduce gun violence or reduce the number of shootings or even to increase number of arrests for shootings, even if you think that arrests and prosecution are the way to deal with gun violence, which a lot of us don't think that that's the way to reduce gun violence. um, And that in the last 30 years is sort of a failed experiment in trying to arrest our way out of violence.
1: So uh, how widespread is this use in Chicago and nationally?
4: Yeah, great question. So in Chicago, the other really striking thing about the way the system is deployed in Chicago um, is where geographically the city chose to deploy the system. So we mapped all of the shot spotter alerts in the city. You can find this on our website and com. And we found out that shot spotter is in 12 police districts. And then we ran the demographics. And those 12 police districts are exactly the 12 police districts with the highest proportion of Black and Latinx residents and the lowest proportion of white residents. And then if you if you run the numbers a different way, you find out that 80% of black Chicagoans live within ShotSpotter's footprint. More than 60% of uh, Latinx Chicagoans do. Only 30% of white Chicagoans do. So it's only these neighborhoods that are predominantly black and brown that have to deal with all of these excess ShotSpotter deployments. One other thing to note is that the inspector general actually looked at the connection to stop and frisk between shot spotter and stop and frisk. And what the inspector general found, just randomly sampling some stops and frisks that mentioned shot spotter in the report, found that what police officers were starting to do is they were starting to justify stop and frisk by saying, oh, I saw this person in an area that has had in the past a lot of shot spotter alerts. Not because they're actually responding to it A recent shot spot alert. So if you think about that, what it means is that this is giving police another justification to stop black and brown people uh, without justification, just because the system has been installed in certain neighborhoods. And, you know, of course, if you're on the north side of Chicago, the predominantly white, wealthier areas, you're not going to be stopped because there was lots of shot spot alerts because there's no shot spotter sensors, right? So, and that's a pattern that's repeated in city after city. And uh, right now, I think there's something like 120 cities across the country that have signed up with ShotSpotter for their services. Yeah, it seems to be a strong connection between the
2: way this system is dictating police behavior. Has any of your research shown a connection between police bias and the bias between the system and algorithms that ShotSpotter produces?
4: Yeah, that's a really good question. It seems like with ShotSpotter that the bias seems to come in in the decision about where to place the sensors in the first place. The idea is that they're they're putting the sensors in neighborhoods that have been subject to over policing and the kinds of sort of racialized policing that people have been organizing against. And so, ShotSpotter may be exacerbating certain kinds of forms of policing in those neighborhoods, or giving like a sort of tech wash justification for certain kinds of policing in those neighborhoods. And and I think it's changing police behavior in another way, because one way to think about the system is that the whole premise is that the police and the public safety institutions don't need to rely on the community to call shootings in or to report violence or to try to alert the police or talk to the police or talk to other officials about situations that might be brewing. Instead, the idea is to have this technology that is literally above the heads of the people and that sends police out to the location of supposed gunfire. So it kind of like cuts the people who live there out of the loop on these calls. And of course, people may call 911 as well. But anecdotally, What you hear from police officers is that they really trust the shot spotter, despite the fact that 90% of the time they show up and don't find anything. And if you look at the app, it all has like the feel of like accurate technology, you know, like it has an app, it gives you like a a pin on a Google map or like a Google map like thing, tells you like three shots fired here. So it feels kind of high tech and reliable, but you know, the proof's in the pudding. I mean, 91% of these alerts, the police show up and they don't find anything.
1: So can you talk about how ShotSpotter uh, may be being used as forensic evidence in court cases?
4: Sometimes prosecutors will try to use ShotSpotter evidence against individuals to make a case and to put somebody in prison. And that raises really serious questions about the reliability and accuracy of the technology, because now we're talking about potentially locking somebody up on the basis of ShotSpotter evidence. And, you know, here in Chicago, the Cook County public Defender has been trying to challenge the reliability of shot spotter in court uh, for some time now. Um, There's something in court, in criminal cases, called a Fry hearing or a Daubert hearing. And the idea is to ask the court to examine whether a system is uh, scientifically valid and reliable before it can be put in front of a jury as evidence. Because things that kind of feel sciencey, uh, if you put them in front of the jury, a jury is likely to trust them. So the idea is that the, the court should kind of be a gatekeeper and make sure that that it, it actually is um, scientifically accepted. And what's happened in Chicago is basically over and over the uh, prosecution has avoided that kind of hearing either by dropping charges or by deciding not to rely on the shot spotter evidence, or by offering a very sweetheart plea deal that the defendant will accept. And so despite the system having been in place in Chicago for years and years, there hasn't been a single fry hearing to test its reliability, which is pretty remarkable. And in fact, you know, nobody outside of shot spotter has ever had the opportunity to Put the system through its paces. So, what do I mean by that? I mean, here's a remarkable fact. So, ShotSpotter has been around for more than 20 years, but there is not a single published field test of the system against sounds that aren't gunshots, against things like fireworks or cars backfiring. So, what I mean is, as far as we know, nobody's ever tested the system against known fireworks or known car backfires other sounds that sound like gunshots, to see how well the system can tell the difference. And without that kind of field testing, uh, there's really no way to know how reliable the system actually is, how well it actually can tell the difference between gunshots and other things that you hear in cities that sort of sound like gunshots. And the fact that that kind of actual field testing has never been done to look for these false positive alerts uh, is really just remarkable. It's completely inconsistent with everything we know about how you have to test forensic tools. It's as if police officers started using like speed guns that have never been tested against like known (laughs) objects going at a known speed. Or, you know, it's like using the family dog as like a drug sniffing dog. Like you have to test these things to try to trip them up to see how well they do. right? And ShotSpot has never done that kind of field testing. So it seems as though we have an
2: issue with Belief in design. You know, the design of this technology allows police officers to feel comfort in the way that they approach uh, potentially uh, gun violence situations. But also, there is this consumer trust that also allows us to buy into certain things that ShotSpotter does. I think that as science communicators, we often try to find the best parts of science to actually develop a proof of concept with an audience that may be unknowing. So like you said, there's not much that we can find out about ShotSpotter online or its algorithms. And I wanted to know if you could share a bit about the algorithms that they use and how
4: they really work. Absolutely. So it's certainly true that ShotSpotter's computer algorithms for distinguishing gunfire from other sounds haven't been vetted publicly. Um, Only a little bit is known about how they work through patents that they've published and um, a couple of technical papers. But one quite remarkable thing about, about that algorithm that's disclosed in a in a paper that a ShotSpotter engineer published is that you know the way these algorithms uh, work is that they're, they're basically meant to detect patterns right so the idea is with the shot spotter algorithm what they do apparently is they take the sound they convert the sound into like a visual waveform and other visual information and then they take these like visual um, depictions and and then they they try to train the algorithm to to identify the ones that sound, that are gunshots, the ones that aren't gunshots, right? So, and the way that you, you train these algorithms is by telling them, you have to like, you have to tell them like, okay, this one is a gunshot, this one's a firework, this one's a gunshot, gunshot, firework, firework. And then the idea is that over time, the algorithm will learn what are the distinctive features of gunshots versus fireworks. So that when it gets a new sample, it'll be able to sort of continue the pattern matching and identify whether it's a gunshot or a firework. So that's the way the system is meant to work. But here's the, the crazy thing that's disclosed in, in this paper that ShotSpotter published. So when they're training the algorithm, they actually don't know the ground truth about whether, whether each sound is a, is a gunshot or a firework. They're just using a human listening to the sound and saying, well, that sounds like gunshots. So we're going to call that a gunshot. So, I mean, there's very little disclosed about this. So I'm, I'm I'm speculating a little bit here, but it seems based on that paper that the algorithm is basically being trained to replicate whatever like this, the human just listening to the, to the sound thinks it is, as opposed to training it on actual known samples where like you test fired a gun or you shot off fireworks or you know it's a sound that you know came from an engine backfiring or something. So that's not the way you're supposed to do this. So that's kind of troubling. And that's one half of it. The other half of of their system is how how they triangulate the locations of noises. And on that side, there is this paper they published, which focuses on different methods of triangulating sound. They actually don't disclose which method they use but they've at least sort of published like a number of different methods that they may be using and kind of, so we know a little bit about what they might be doing on that side. But the the truth is that both of these algorithms are essentially black boxes that nobody outside of ShotSpotter has been able to test or vet or or look into. If I can just add one more point, the human operator who's listening to these sounds does play a really important role because it's up to them whether or not to actually trigger the alert. So the way that those people are trained is actually pretty crucially important. And one thing that the public defender here in Chicago discovered is that ShotSpotter has a protocol called the classification continuum that they use to guide these operators about how to classify the sound as gunshot or something else. ShotSpotter refused to make that public. They fought in court to keep that document secret and all we know at this point is that an audio expert that was able to look at the document um, subject to a non-disclosure order, his, his opinion was that anybody who is using the system should take a look at this document because it is very important to understanding how subjective the system is. I'm paraphrasing, but that was basically his point, that this is a really crucial document and yet is fighting to keep it secret. Yeah, while well, there is a
2: history of ShotSpotter in Chicago, it must be said that Detroit, where we are today, has recently, in the past year, implemented ShotSpotter technology. And it seems as though urban cities always have the hard place of being a experimental ground for untrained algorithms, and we've seen that with video surveillance here in Detroit with the Project Greenlight, and now with ShotSpotter and this audio surveillance, how can we as citizens begin to learn more about ShotSpotter and also gather to actually begin to speak to people about some of the concerns that we may have?
4: Yeah, I I think there just has to be a lot more um, oversight and democratic Um, participation and deliberation in the way that these systems are rolled out. So, you know, when you roll out a system of microphones that covers um, entire cities, entire neighborhoods, rather, um, half the city in Chicago, that's going to change police behavior. That's going to change the way people experience their city. The same with facial recognition technology, Um, license plate readers. You know, these are technologies that mean that people no longer have the anonymity and maybe sense of security that they um, enjoyed in public spaces in the past. And people who live under these surveillance systems should know what they're being subjected to and have a say, a meaningful say, in whether it makes sense. You know, some cities have outright banned certain surveillance technologies. So New Orleans, for example, banned facial recognition technology recently. Other cities have uh, adopted these surveillance transparency ordinances, which basically require the police department to get city council's approval, explicit approval before rolling out surveillance technology, and to report on the privacy and civil civil rights and civil liberties concerns. There's different models out there about how to kind of make sure that these systems are are rolled out in a kind of democratically accountable way, and those are things worth worth exploring. The other the other thing I think that's important to think about is what kinds of institutions do we have to to regulate these technologies and how they're used once they're in place oftentimes there's two different questions one is like does it even work <laughs> you know there's like we shouldn't forget like before we get to the questions about privacy and disparate impact we should like also think about like like does it do what it's saying it's it's supposed to be doing and you know there's real questions about whether shot spotter fails that test right so having some kind of oversight body that can do that that work um, and also to ensure that we're if we're going to use these technologies that we're protecting people's civil rights and civil liberties and because of the way that the court systems work and the way that the deck is often stacked against people who are arrested and are get, get fed into the system just relying on the criminal legal system to do that work may not be enough
2: that does it for us today folks thanks for listening to this episode of tracked and traced and we'll catch you next time
5: A quick editor's note, the originally published version of this story stated that ShotSpotter has not been independently verified for accuracy and that ShotSpotter Incorporated did not provide WDET with evidence of the technology's accuracy. In fact, ShotSpotter did provide WDET with a link to an audit performed by a consulting firm that they commissioned. The audit used data supplied by ShotSpotter Incorporated and confirmed ShotSpotter's claim that the technology is 97% accurate. However, the source data was not included in the audit report. Also, while reporting the story, the Detroit Police Department told WDET that ShotSpotter works within a roughly 100-yard radius. ShotSpotter Incorporated says the technology works within an 82-foot radius. Tracked and Traced is hosted by Antoine Scott and Natasha T. Miller. Today's episode was produced by David Lyons with reporting from Bryce Huffman and editing by David Lyons David Weinberg, and Eli Newman. With Vox Pops from the Science Gallery mediator team, Harrison Adams, Aliamel Mel Avila-Sanchez, Shanmin Sultana, and Caroline White. With mixing, mastering, and original music by Sam Bobian. Tracked and Traced is a collaboration between MSU Science Gallery and WDET, Detroit's NPR station, with support from the Pulitzer Center, the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan, and MSU-FCU.